You're listening to Diamond and Human. Dang it. <laughs> Podcasts from the pub. This is The Pitch. Welcome to Diamond and Human The Pitch. I'm Nathan. I'm James. Uh, today we do the rom-com. Um, it's probably been the most popular um, alongside our superheroes one, certainly in terms of our our audience, our vast audience, with yes. responses on social media, and I think it's safe to say we're fans too. Yeah, oh yeah, oh definitely, and it's one of those. I've got no, I've got no fear or shame of saying that I quite like a rom com. We wear our rom com badges with we pride. We do, we do. There this are certain caveats, and I'm sure we'll come on to that. But yeah, I've, I will, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I kind of, op- I welcome them with open arms. Yes. Uh, this episode, we'll talk about the rules for the genre, uh, and we'll get some help from a special guest. I've written three romantic comedy novels, and my fourth comes out in May 2016, and it's called... Uh, we'll reveal who that is and what their book is called uh, shortly. We'll also talk about classics of the genre and dip our toes into some controversial waters as we rule out a few films that we don't think fit the criteria. I know we talked about this briefly before, but I think in terms of cinematic terms, we're kind of saying the romantic comedy feels quite modern, although there's probably obvious roots back via sort of Much Ado About Nothing and Shakespeare, um, but and maybe musicals as well. Mm. Probably yeah. romantic comedy is 89% of musicals, which I believe is an official stat made up by me right now. No, well, I, I, you've clearly done your research. Yeah, uh, 89%. That's it. Yeah. Check it out. That's, okay. that's all it, musicals. It's rom-coms and the French Revolution. There yeah. you go. That's it. So I guess as well, we're maybe ruling out screwball comedies in our definition. Yeah, uh, yeah. there's a few kind of screwball comedies that, uh, yeah, I think probably the most famous one would be uh, Some Like It Hot. I wouldn't class that as a romantic comedy myself. Well, I think that fits in of the reason why is it's the outrageous scenario which we have yeah. in romantic comedies yeah. and like the meet cute thing yeah. is that's the whole premise of that film. Yes. So it, it's not about the romance. Yeah, it, much. That's, a, that's a buddy comedy, if, if anything, if you ask me. There's the, and in lots of buddy comedies, there is a romantic interest, but your key relationship there is between the two men in that film. Um, Whereas the right, yeah, yeah, there are some some classic screwball comedies. I think are textbook romantic comedies. His Girl Friday would be one for me. Set in a newspaper office, uh, everyone talks like they're in a kind of Aaron Sorkin universe. Uh, gone posh. It's brilliant, um, but it's about uh, an editor played by Cary Grant who's really chauvinistic and he's got a really tough talking female reporter and they talk very quickly like this I'm going to get the scoop god damn it and uh, it's fantastic but it's a, but that's about their relationship and at the end they overcome their flaws and it turns out that it's one of the most classic ones two people that shouldn't love each other but you know what deep down they kind of do and it's funny that's a romantic comedy there that's a great summation <laughs> I like that a lot we're kind of so I think uh, I was looking at a few people online have thrown out their suggestions and, and we'll give you a roundup. We like to do a shout out for everyone if possible. But the one that kept coming back, and I, I'm, I'm going to throw it out there, I think is a starting point of modern romantic comedy. And it actually isn't that controversial, mm. is When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, I, I think that would be in the way that The Godfather would be your your archetypal gangster film, for example. And also um, setting off a genre yeah, as a starting exactly, point. Yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. Possibly, yeah, and look, in other genres you had things like Halloween started the slasher genre, and it's probably the prime arc. Yeah, When Harry Met Sally is uh, patient zero of 
romantic comedy. And I mean that in the best will, with the best film in the world because it's, it's a brilliant film. It, it's got believable characters. Don't quite believe Billy Crystal is a college student uh, near the beginning of it. Obviously, that, that's a bit tough. Um, but on the whole, believable characters, flawed but likeable, and, and, and it, it's a realistic relationship as well. I think that's what's really nice about it. And it's funny. Well, it's another thing that characters drive a romantic comedy. Um, I think if we're looking at other genres and ones we've done before, we've talked about in our pictures of who we want to play it and why, and it's yeah. often plot-driven. Yeah. With something like romantic comedy, if your characters don't work, you don't believe them, you're, you're pretty much done right yes. right from the start. So I kind of think, uh, what, what are we thinking are our main ingredients? I mean, you've touched upon it a little bit. What do yeah. you think we've got to have? Okay. Uh, yeah, for, for a start, you've got to have uh, a relationship at the heart of it. It seems really simple, but that needs to be the heart of it. Too, I think too many romantic comedies kind of churned out by Hollywood over the years have started off with the, the, the funny, outrageous premise and then, oh, and two people fall in love. No, it needs to be about them. And for me, a great romantic comedy, you could put them in any, you could put that story of them in almost any situation and it would still work. Um, so, you know, Notting Hill, for example, she wouldn't have to be an American actress. Oh, yeah, you know, it wouldn't have to be in London and she wouldn't have to necessarily be an actress. She could be a sports person. Same kind of thing, you know, these kind of things. Um, you need to have that. You need to have, in my opinion, some funny best friends, okay, that, that really helps make it. They need to have outside counsel. It can't just be about those two people. You've got to have the conflict. You've got to have the will they won't need because it, we know that they will most of the time, most of the time. And that's, a, yeah, that's a, almost a different subsection of romantic comedy, but we know that they will get together. But it's also got to be a believable reason why they might not. And you've got, you've got to root for... That's, that's ultimately it, isn't it? You've got to root for them. If you don't care what happens to them, what's the point? I think this is a really good time to uh, bring in uh, our special guests. Not that they're with us. Uh, so I spoke to the other week when James and I talked about doing romantic comedies. Uh, I'm a big fan of this author and was delighted when she agreed to do an interview with us. Um, and we managed to get on the phone to uh, Vari McFarlane, uh, who's now best-selling author of fourth books coming up, and wanted to really speak to her. I think the first part is about we're doing a movie, and I was really curious from a writer's point of view, how much does she visualise a story? Um, I, I would love to say, yes, it's this giant George R. R. Martin-style canvas in my head, but the truth of the matter is, no, I tend to focus um, in on characters. So, obviously... You are picturing the setting. You've chosen a certain city. You choose locations and all the rest of it. Um, I, I don't sit there with a kind of panoramic uh, view of um, how it would look on screen, which which I think would be a bit kind of, you know, if wishes were horses, unhelpful anyway. I mean, everyone has their writing process and you do what you need to do to get the book done. Um, trying to imagine the working title, <laughs> multi-million pound film while you're writing, I think would be a, a bit of a distraction, if I'm honest. <laughs> it does seem you have really clear um, settings in, in your books and your stories oh, particularly you. um, so it did make me think are, are they based on real ones so particularly thinking of Newcastle which it really felt like it was you were writing in the city as you read it were, were they real places so that's a good question sometimes it's a, it's a pretty kind of 50-50 split a lot of the time I'm writing places that I've actually been and with it's not me it's you in Newcastle I actually did for the first time did a proper research trip um, research trip in heavily inverted commas <laughs> <laughs> wandered around all the pubs and bars um, so I went to places that are featured in the book 
um, so for example, rasa, um, and um, but but then you start mixing things up. So um, Paul's pub in the book is um, a pub called the Bridge, but I just repurposed it for his pub. But then they go to I think it's the Crown Posada, and that is a real place again. So you, you're always kind of repurposing, and then. Later on in the book, um, Delia goes to a very pretentious restaurant, which between me, you and the podcast, um, was inspired by Dabu. <laughs> but I didn't actually want, I thought it would actually just be more fun to make up a restaurant. So the restaurant called Apricity in there is just the kind of, you know, it's got all the hallmarks of the, um, you know, the ridiculous signature dish and the tempestuous uh, rock and roll chef that's been in the Observer Food Monthly and everything. So sometimes sometimes just freeform invention is really fun. But I think people would become a little bit disappointed orientated if you picked a city they knew and then proceeded to describe a bunch of places that aren't really there so one of the challenges for james and i on making our pitch is making sure um we've got the essential ingredients what do you think are the type of essential ingredients we need to be looking to include in our romantic comedy pitch I think um, I would, I mean, I don't know, you could probably argue this is true true of any novel. I think conflict is absolutely essential. I think that there is, it, there's nothing more boring than, than a couple that look predestined to be together from the start. And then, the, you know, the course of love, the course of love has to not run smooth, doesn't it? Um, and I also think that... Um, you know, I, I think I, I think I just like writing people having really big barneys at each other. Um, so yeah, there will always be. I think there needs to be big showdowns. I think there's also there's got to be an element of misunderstanding. Um, and what's so, why one of the reasons Jane Austen is so completely brilliant with with say a classic like Pride and Prejudice is that it's partly that they don't understand each other and it's partly that they don't like each other and they change over the course of the book. So I think I think um, when you go 100% on misunderstandings, it doesn't ring true to people and it's quite naff and shallow. So, it, but but there always has to be a, a kind of because because that's the kind of the intrigue and the suspense in a romantic comedy novel, isn't it? That that you don't quite know what the other person is thinking and sooner or later someone misreads something and goes off on goes off on one um what else i think you've got to have your big you've got to have your big romantic scenes as well i mean it's what i it's what i would buy my books for if i wasn't me <laughs> that just sounds weird now and egotistical i just mean that you want you want the kind of you want the conflict but you also want the swoon and you want the um i don't ever put the airport dash in but you always want that sense that you know there's a ticking clock and there's only so much time um and i, I was working with um a, a script editor a while back and she had a really good phrase where she said you've got to feel that these two people would live a better life together than they would live apart or with anyone else so you're always trying to do that build of these two people have something really quite special here that's really quite unusual you know it's because then it, let's face it anyone can invent two attractive people who'd quite like to sleep with each other um but there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of peril in that yeah i guess it's also the sense of hope that that generates as the reader you want to feel yeah. as hopeful as the characters maybe do as well Yes. Oh, my God. Definitely. Yeah. Although a strong list of ingredients was clearly helpful, I was more concerned with how to shape those into a decent story. I had seen a quote by Vari in an interview with the Huffington Post where she was asked about the most challenging aspect of writing a novel. And she gave an answer that said plotting is hard, but it's also bringing together all of these different elements. I wanted to know whether Vari had a strategy for this, as I was clearly thinking about stealing it for James and I. Did she start with a clear plan, like a wall of notes? No, I don't. Well, 
there's kind of, there's prosaic and artistic reasons for this. I mean, I so far have been, um, and will continue, in fact, to write a novel a year. Um, and I, that is a pretty brisk schedule. You know, you, you say a year, and even I, before going into the industry, would have thought, ooh, a year, ooh, not bad. Um, in reality, in reality, if someone said to you, write 10 university dissertations in a year, it, you know, which is equivalent length, you'd start to go, oh, this deal doesn't sound quite so great. Um, so, I mean, to be honest, the, the, the kind of wall of record cards I tend to think of as a little bit of fanning around. Uh, there isn't an awful lot of fanning around uh, in that schedule. Um, I also think that... You You've got to, if you plan everything, every last bit and cough, and if you're writing a very intricate crime novel or perhaps a Game of Thrones where, my God, you know, how does he keep track of all those characters? I'm sure that that kind of that sort of planning is very important. Um, I think that if you're writing something a little bit less intricate, I think that you've got to leave some surprises for yourself as the author because that's how you maintain your own interest. And if you've literally gone right, you know, da dum da dum da dum, this happens in this chapter, I think your will to write the thing would start to mm. ebb a little bit. Um, and, you know, you get people who take this to the absolute other extreme. So, for example, Stephen King is absolutely adamant that he never ever starts a novel knowing what's going to happen to his characters and he sees it as binding them up tight and letting them work themselves free. And his argument is, if I don't know how it's going to end, how can a reader possibly second guess it? I'm not that bold. <laughs> I need to know where things are going. Because, again, when you're on a schedule, you don't want to write 40,000 words and realize actually you were just heading down a dead end. Um, so, yeah, so I, it's a mixture. I definitely have an outline. I definitely have a sense of a few major incidents along the way. And I definitely have a sense of the destination. Um, because I think particularly with romantic comedy, I think that kind of... Um, you know that shapes it i mean for example david nichols one day you can't possibly imagine him writing that no no spoilers here but you can't imagine writing that and not knowing that's where the story was headed ultimately um it's you know there's a very obvious kind of choices and build towards that ending so i'm, I'm never completely sure about people who say i don't know how it's going to end i mean yeah. it's clearly it's done stephen king no harm there is also a school of thought that these are such kind of talented writers and writing writing within a form um that they um they have internalized a certain amount of good storytelling techniques so that they you know there's a certain amount of subconscious stuff going on so they can get away with all the fly by seat of your pants so that one about conflict i think we've touched upon that already if you've you've got to have this between them and you've got to have the dash for romance you've got to have the hope of it um and you said about they almost always get together yeah right so I thought this is a good one to ask Vari of yeah is it essential are these stories do they stand you know like a superhero mm. film they, we know they're going to win. Yes. Is that the same in, in a rom-com? No, not necessarily. And um, my publisher is very good on that. And there, there is absolutely no pressure on me that they say, you know, we want you to deliver a girl meets boy and eventually they walk off hand in hand into the sunset. They're very open to sad endings, open endings. I mean, it's, I, I don't want to name specific things because then you start spoiling all over the place. But there has been some pretty big romantic novel hits of the last few years that have had sad endings where people do not end up together one way or another um so i, I you know it's certainly not a, um, a commercially bad idea um I, I guess it's also specific to the to the story so there are some stories where i think you know the, the for example again trying not to spoil i you know my latest novel doesn't perhaps end in an entirely expected way Ooh. Although I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it um, a weepy. Um, so yeah, well, that's an intriguing you, teaser. Yeah. <laughs> 
so it's so you can definitely mix it up and i think i think you think you've got to i think that i guess there are some stories where if they didn't end up together i mean to to use a film parallel um because now there's got to be a statute of limitations on some spoiling here when harry met sally i think is all the better film for the fact that they end up together um bridget jones you know you want her to be with um, mark darcy at the end or whatever um so yeah so you know it's it's specific to the project but in terms of it being an absolute essential to romantic comedy no i don't think it is A huge thank you to Vari McFarlane for chatting to us. You can find out more about Vari and her work at varimcfarlane.com. And for those wanting to double check, that's Vari spelled M-H-A-I-R-I. Vari's latest book, It's Not Me, It's You, is out now and you should go and read it. Pretty much as soon as you've finished listening to this. Her fourth book, Who's That Girl?, will be released April 2016. We'll upload the full interview with Vari in which we chat about what control an author might get or indeed want when their work gets adapted. Is it important that stories written by women should have female directors? And we also discuss to what extent characters can decide their own fate. We'll post up the links for Vari and that extra interview on our website, diamondandhuman.co.uk and also on social media, where you can find us on both Facebook and Twitter. Right, so there's things we know we want to be in a romantic comedy. Uh, are there things we don't want in? What, is there anything that ruins it for us? Um, Kate Hudson. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Previously, Matthew McConaughey until oh, he until he learnt to act. Oh no, no, he always could. Is, it, is it a case? Is he like a reverse? You know, Samson, like with the hair. Is Matthew McConaughey the reverse of like once he puts his shirt on? Yeah, he starts. Acting. He starts acting. Maybe that's it. That 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 uh, that kind of aftershave advert he did, where it ends that's with just genius. him laying there, topless for no reason. Never have I wanted to punch someone more in the face. Never. Wow. I, it, what, that's so much and then, but then uh, actually you say is it the shirt actually the thing that made me realise I, I like Matthew McConaughey and this could be taken in all sorts of ways was when I saw him uh, in a pair of uh, leather chaps and shirtless in Magic Mike when he was at, utterly fantastic stole the show in that film that's when I went ah oh, that boy can act so maybe it's he had his bod out in that one so uh, it's open it's a testable theory horrible miscasting just generally annoys me because it is about those characters um, and if they just think that a pretty person can do it no it needs to be someone who can carry off comedy because it's in the name romantic comedy it, it is often a derided genre probably mm. more than any other that you, there's so many slurs are thrown at it that it's yeah. easy it's slight it's, it's not real it's not mm -hmm. got action whereas like I was saying with the characters and stories it's, it's actually probably harder to get right than, yeah. than like a standard action film. If you're doing an action film, you know, right, I can throw in a few set pieces, people will generally yeah. be quite happy, yep. the demographic, the watch. I, I think and there's almost a perverse pleasure in them doing it badly. Yeah, you've got, you've got a ready-made audience for bad action films out there, people who genuinely love watching bad action films. Yeah, it's bad, <coughs> bad rom-coms. There's not the same... Uh, what you've got, slightly differently, is that there are people who will just go to the cinema to watch any rom-com. 
and I, but I don't think they enjoy it in the. Oh, maybe they do. Maybe I, maybe I'm not seeing. Uh, but I. But there is a similar thing, isn't there? Of you know, people go and watch a Jason Statham mm. action film, and there are those acts. Like you said, Kate Hudson, that yeah. seem to fit it. So we had a run of Tom Hanks movies, yeah. which I'm sure a lot of favourites. People were all saying, yeah. sort of "Splash," you've got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle. Then strangely, John Cusack. Yes. For like a few years, he went from some of my favourites because I'm definitely putting these in the camp of romantic comedy of high fidelity mm-hmm. yeah gross point blank yes and then serendipity a bit more of a traditional one but yeah. he had a run of those and yeah I, i'm not sure he'd ever have picked john cusack as a romantic leading man no 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 because obviously he did say anything when he was very young but then he started doing some uh, interesting actiony stuff as well yeah he's great part in con air um and gross point blank is that perfect mix of action nostalgia and romantic comedy um which you know, is a fantastic film despite Minnie Driver, in my opinion. I can't stand a woman, but uh, well, I think she's balanced out by Dan Aykroyd being. Yes, in it. yeah, exactly. And Dan, <laughs> it's a good trade Dan Aykroyd's last good role, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. Um, you do get some some odd ones. Some 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 people just turn up, and then once they've done it, one well, Gerard Butler's a really weird one of recent years. So Gerard Butler, who you know was. Um, the guy from Sparta and, uh, you know, from 300. And he, he's been in kind of White House being destroyed films. I can't discern between all of them. I think he was in Olympus Has Fallen. Yeah, yeah. White House Down was a different one. Um, but then he'll, like, do one where he's, like, a new teacher and there's a load of soccer moms who fancy him and stuff. It's like, the hell is Gerard? But, yeah, make up your mind. You wouldn't, for example, these days now see Liam Neeson. Uh, turn yeah, Liam Neeson's gone down that action route. Gerald Butler's he's a weird come back. One. I think he's going to come home. He's, he's great in Love Actually. Yeah. His little storyline in Love Actually is really nice. Yeah. But that's actually about him and his son rather than him and a woman, really. Is it, is it Claudia Schiffer? No, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, yeah. It's more about him and his son. But I think, yeah. well, I think there's something, there is these, these tropes that work really well of the butch kind of action man. So I think now Liam Neeson going back, I think will work even more for viewers, I do. If this wow, is the guy okay. that's, yeah. I th- yeah. Maybe I've cast him. Yeah, well, and Jack knows? Nicholson went down that route as well, didn't as he? As good as it gets. In old age, as good as it gets, and then a few others that people cast yeah. him in after that. Bill Murray's kind of done it a bit recently. Obviously, Bill Murray's in one of the other great romantic comedies, Groundhog Day, fantastic romantic comedy, which is brilliant despite Andy McDowell. Um, I like these despite people. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, they I, kind of have to overcome. Well, I think that's also another thing, isn't it? A lot of these comedies, uh, romantic comedies, overcome flaws. So mm. it's quite famous of Richard Curtis suddenly throwing in a cranky, awful, clunky, cringeworthy line. Which well, I don't know. I hadn't noticed. Oh, <laughs> uh, we've got to have a sound effect on that one. <laughs> but there's one bit... Um, I know we're obviously quite normally frivolous on the pitch, but there's one area of this I, I don't think we can avoid. Mm. Of Traditionally, the certainly in the novels, it's female writers. Yeah. Um, it's traditionally thought of as a female audience. Mm-hmm. And this is of no dispute. I'm not making an assumption. I think this is other people's yeah. assumptions. In, in the way that kind of Jason Statham films are traditionally seen of as being a male audience. I, I, you're not... Gender stereotyping. Jason say Statham, that's a male audience or just an idiot's audience? Uh, oh, you, you leave the Statham. You wait till you see my cast for my romantic comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Statham in all the roles. Yeah, exactly. Him and Vin Diesel. I'm going down a very, very different route. <laughs> Vin Diesel mumbling all lines. But I do think this is this is a strange thing. And I had a look out, and there are a lot of stories that were written by women, but mm. have immediately got 
male directors and male and obviously we know the film industry yeah well you just got to look at um, Marin Cotillard just today I think came out speaking about um, how she isn't a feminist because what her I imagine her definition is that feminists are people who want women to get like equal opportunities in the sense that yeah, her example was that the yeah, the Cannes Film Festival should have if that in that case it should have five films by men and five films by women and she's saying it should be on merit and I think everyone would agree it should be on merit the problem is systemically that women aren't getting the opportunities to make the films in the first place to then be part of that world so it's a different but I, I don't think being a feminist means you want women to get um, better treatment it's women to get equal opportunity to me that's feminism yeah, I think she yeah. kind of had a, a different version. She was saying... But, you know, she's French and they've got different versions of... You know, chauvinist is a French word, so that's all I'm going to say. We've got to do our favourites, haven't we? We've talked about a few okay, of our, yeah. our main ones. Well, I'm going to say straight away, Kirsty Meeling, Shrek is not a romantic comedy. No, it's a fantasy cartoon. Goodness sake, what's wrong with you people? Right, let's go for it. Let's see if we can trade. Oh, also, uh, one more one are we getting rid of. We had a few people say Shaun of the Dead. Uh, again, for me... It's in every action film, the hero has a potential romantic thing going on. And that's what happens there. It's a comedy. There is some romance. It doesn't make it a romantic comedy. There we go. Done. Definitive answer. Um, I really like Roman Holiday. It's like that's the a nice one. one. No, uh, I'm going to go with um, uh, The Wedding Singer. Uh, big fan of uh, the, the probably one of the few Adam Sandler films I like. Yeah, I think you stop. I think a lot of people agree with yeah. that. Um, I've got one I don't actually like the actress said despite of. I really like The Last Kiss despite Zach Braff being in it and writing it and oh, probably directing right, okay. it. And writing a theme tune and producing it and <laughs> everything else he does. Um, I did really like As Good As It Gets. That was definitely one of mine. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Clueless. I uh, love Clueless. That's Great cracking. Film. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll, I'll do a, a tit for tat on that as yeah. a, a team one. Uh, Ten things I hate about you. See, I've still not seen that. As your and homework. I've, I've told loads of people have told me they see that. Um, uh, kind of a bit of a grown-up one. Crazy Stupid Love uh, with Steve Carell and the Goz. I, I ended up, this is this is my slight confession. Oh, and Marissa Tomei, who I adore. I love Marissa Tomei Well, that's so a much. great cast in that film. Yeah. Emma Stone as well. Yes, yeah, wow. I, I watched that on the plane back. Um, I think from New York and had to do the horrible thing of the, the flight attendant came asking what a drink. And are you okay, sir? And I was properly <laughs> in tears at the end of it. I'm blaming the altitude and the tiredness. Of but course. Yeah, it was yeah. proper tears. Um, have you got a favourite? Have you got a standout one? Do you know, uh, there's... A, a, I, I still don't know if this is a romantic comedy, but I'm putting it forward to a romantic comedy. But it's uh, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, for me, no. is at heart about a relationship. It's, no. it's got loads of crazy science and uh, and fantastic uh, Michel Gondry kind of visuals and things like that. When Michel Gondry made great films rather than just experimental weirdness. Um, but it's about a relationship. Uh, it's about a normal, flawed relationship. And it's funny. So I'm saying it counts. That's a great film, though. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely going for a straight down the middle classic uh, meets all the criteria, obvious uh, rom-com of Martha meet Frank, Daniel and Lawrence, uh, which has got uh, Joseph Fiennes, Rufus Sewell and Tom Hollander, uh, who might make an appearance later. Ooh. Uh, really? I'd forgotten it had got Tom Hollander in it. Is he, one of, is he one of the three? Yeah. Oh, my God. I've not seen it since about the year after I met Kate. We watched it together. She, she introduced me to it in about 99 or something like that. It's brilliant. It's well worth a watch okay. again. Okay. 
Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with our films for The Pitch. As you know, we tag both of our series as podcasts from the pub, but we will be leaving the pub to head on our arena tour. That's right. Okay, so it's just one date, but we're still calling it a tour. And yes, it's in the studio at Wolverhampton Arena Theatre, but that's all irrelevant. It's our arena tour. We'll be there doing both the pitch and let the music play on at a free event on Monday the 26th of October at 7.30pm. We'd like you to join us for a drink and hopefully contribute yourself. Tickets are available now and you can find the link on our website. Hi, welcome back. Uh, I'm Nathan. I'm James. And this is Diamond and Human, The Pitch. Uh, we've done the coin toss and James keeps winning. Yeah. As he's been winning all the episodes as Tales well. Tails always lose. No, that's not. No, Tails always fails. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness me, that was shocking. Uh, and I've got to go first. So our rom-com pitches. As always, we're going to do a brief little intro to uh, of our pitch. Um, and then we'll swap back and forth and we'll do a bit more detailed version of our story, what happens. And then we'll get into our cast and crew and finish on a trailer. Um, mine has got a, a, a... Normally this is your issue of not liking a title. Um, yeah. I've got one I'm not happy with, but I'm going to go with it for now. So mine is called The Search For Me. Verity is a teacher. She's in her 40s, towards late 40s. She was super keen. She still sort of is, but having seen all her friends quit and now look happier, healthier, and younger, she's starting to have doubts. As the school she works at approaches a merger, three very different men appear in her life, almost like they want to merge as well. I didn't think of that one. Uh, each of them offering and wanting different things. Okay. My brief synopsis. Nice. Okay. Uh, yeah, I continue my terrible title and then trying to s- s- put a pun somewhere in the strap line because that's, li- that's I'm a one-trick pony and that trick is falling over its own feet, basically. So, uh, but we've not been good at finding a title during it. So that, 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 that generally helps, yeah. So, again, I'm focus grouping this, everyone. Um, so, uh, my, mine is called Extra Life. Okay, the tagline. Press heart to continue. Right, yeah. Ta- I like it. Okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, so uh, yes, Tom Hoxley um, is forty years old. His son has grown up and gone to university, and the moment he does, his whole life falls apart as he realizes that after twenty years of marriage, well, twenty years of being with his wife, um, they've got nothing left in their lives anymore, and maybe they want other things. The problem is. What else is there for them? Uh, So Tom decides to start his life over again, go back to university and do what he always wanted to do the first time, meet people he didn't meet the first time. And maybe this time round, he can get past all the levels and beat the end of level bad guy. See, if this was just the the elevator pitch, you'd win every time. Because mine, I, I don't know what it is. I, could, I can't think of summarising, or maybe it's just rubbish. Although I am giving myself credit, because when you said, um, as a couple, they didn't know what else there was yeah. for them, I did have to hold back of just going, dogging. <laughs> like, like as in a Pavlovian response. Yeah, yeah. She's a pun. I just wanted to blurt it out, so I will give myself a bit of credit. Okay, let's see if I can redeem myself. Okay. So I'm clearly way behind here. Um, so, yes, the search for me. Verity isn't looking for anything. This isn't a story of 
a, a woman at home going, oh, I want... She's not. She's absolutely fine. She's never been desperate for a partner. She's just got on with being very content in general. But two events converge on her at the same time. The both, for very different reasons, have the effect of making Verity question whether the life she's carved out is one she's genuinely happy with or has she just found ways to settle down herself but just not in the traditional way. The two events are that her school is being forced into a merger and her mum's declining health. Her best friend is the principal of the school, Paula. Seeing a little bit of the comic relief, she's a bit weird as this principal, mm. as they all are. Yes. And Paula is settled, married, the kids are off at uni and have no help whatsoever with advice. Uh, and she's equally now becoming quite distant with the merger happening. Verity's call to adventure comes when the kids in her class leave a dating site open on the interactive whiteboard. She also tells the principal she, uh, that she'll take on the acting head of English and now is immediately told she has to be involved in the negotiations for the merger. On top of that, she's got a mentor, an NQT. Uh, her mum is a single parent and is ill back at the family home. She insists on staying there even though it's a village out of the way. But watching a mum struggle on her own starts Verity thinking that having a partner might just make practical sense. So not in that romantic way, but just having someone around that, you know, might know where the financial stuff is and can tidy things up and yeah, make it. Yeah, so yeah just yeah. in that kind of way. She now, in her head of English department role, has to liaise with the opposite one from the other school, Peter. Obviously, they immediately clash on the reorganisation and his attitude. He is most definitely a cad. Because Verity now is starting to see everyone as profiles like on a dating site and is immediately yeah. kind of allocating them. So her NQT, Kyle, he's feisty. He's full of the hopes of the young. And she tries not to be too annoyed that the kids love his lessons. Obviously they do. He's an NQT. He's cool. Uh, and he tells tales of his exciting weekends that he's had with his friends and all the trips he goes on. But she sets up her online dating profile. And this has become kind of a big thing for her. But she's realized quite early on she doesn't actually want to go on any dates. So instead, she ends up starting this correspondence with a nerdy guy called Paul. At night, she just talks to Paul about her crappy day, but mainly about plot twists on Netflix and different recipes. I always think the romantic comedies, and I've taken on board here Vari's advice of what, what are the moments. So that's kind yeah. of the main setup and the story where we're going and a call to adventure, but there's a crunch moment where this all comes together. Um, there's an important inter-school meeting with the governors where they've got to finalise all the details and she's been asked to go been told it's one of those it's a bridge building opportunity you know like teachers and schools have that corporate speak yeah. to con you it's a crappy idea you're not helicoptering chuff <laughs> <laughs> his helicopter stupid anyway back to the pitch um in the afternoon before this meeting she gets a phone call from the local pub uh, saying there's been an incident at the pub verity's on call so she has to go but it's not kids there no it's john the geography teacher the kind of classic older teacher that moans about all the changes, no one really speaks to. And when Verity gets there, she starts feeling a little bit guilty because Johnny's drunk. Johnny's outside in the garden in a hut at the top of the slide. He starts just talking about not growing up, about missing out, about how quickly one term slides into a year. And this makes Verity realise she doesn't care about the school's meeting and instead she answers Paul's nervous online request to meet for real. And she says yes, and they meet in a local pub. Obviously, he's sweet and funny and charming and very nerdy, and she doesn't fancy him at all because that's how these things work. That's right. Paul goes off to the bar, and this is when Verity realises the tart from her class, who's always saying rude things to her, is working at the same bar. But she ends up being the one that gives us some great advice because Paul's gone to the bar to get changed for the condom machine. 
because he thinks that's what he should do. He's on a date, I'm gonna get laid. So she gets some advice from her local top, from the girl that's in her class. And then she tries to tell Paul she thinks their relationship is just something that should stay online. But he cuts her off saying he knows he's not right for her. He's just a nerd and she's a fighter. She necks a drink. And at this point, Peter, the cad from the other school, comes in laughing with some cronies. We all know what's going to happen. Verity, a little bit drunk, steams over, having a go at him, slagging off how dare he laugh. He's jeopardising all the school. But it turns out Peter's there with union reps, trying to make sure all the staff are looked after. He says he can take gambles, he can be pushy, but he has to have options, like an insurance policy. Their barriers come down, obviously with the booze, and she opens up to him about her mum. And she also confides a story to him. Next day, she's full of regret over this because Kyle, her NQT, the feisty young one, sees her typing a message on the dating site to Paul. And she confesses she feels like an idiot. She's now telling Paul about how whilst drunk, she told Peter about this place she goes to down a lane near her mum's house when she wants to be alone. This builds to our kind of crescendo of the romantic moment that as a merger is looming, she gets bad news about her mum and heads down to see her. She has to leave the house where her mum lives, full of memories and pictures, and she heads to the spot down the lane. Her phone goes off, but she turns that off and throws it aside. We then see a car pull up. We see a figure take steps towards Verity. The phone is picked up. It appears next to Verity. Her voice says, I hope you've got insurance for that. And it's Peter. Might be a little bit after that, but that's kind of the main crescendo okay. of getting them. So from the call to adventure, the crunch moment, and what happens to Verity. I can properly visualise that. That's, that's slightly I better can. then. I, I can, I can properly visualise that. What's quite interesting is that we've both basically written romantic comedies about older people kind of not in a great place. We haven't written these young, dashing, kind of, no, old, sad people, basically. <laughs> uh, what's the old adage? Write what you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try and deliver mine then. So, uh, Tom Hoxley. Is in he's four, he's just hit forty and life has quite literally passed him by. Not not in the bad sense, but just in the John Lennon quote way. Uh, life is what happens when you're making busy other plans, that kind of thing. So Tom and Diane uh, dropping their son off at university, uh, say goodbye to him, and empty nest syndrome kicks in almost straight away as they try to enjoy a quiet pub lunch on the way home. A uh, number of little niggles over lunch, snowball, until a blazing row breaks out about how they've both put their lives on hold to raise a family. They've been together since Freshers' Week when they first met at university over 20 years ago and have never really known much else apart from being together. Diane thinks it might be time to see what else is out there before it's too late and we're planning to euthanise each other on a river cruise down the Danube. So Tom is suddenly dropped back into the real world at 40. But the problem is, at 40, you haven't had a chance to develop any of those survival skills that uh, are needed uh, for a person at that age. He's basically a lion raised in captivity and released onto the Serengeti. And uh, now even the antelope are licking their lips in anticipation of him. Tom decides to do his life over again. And he returns to university to study his childhood love of video game design. When he first went to university, it wasn't really an option. It was a silly hobby that he had in his bedroom and he, he chose something boring like business. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, really, really uh, you know, stereotypical. So uh, he had actually, when he was younger, been a rather respected amateur creator of games for the, the Spectrum. Um, 
And, and that's what I, I love, that kind of bedroom hobby that was there as a culture. And I want to explore a little bit of that uh, as we go through this. His return to university isn't easy to begin with. He doesn't have a lot in common with any of the students. Uh, again, this is kind of based on my... I was only a few years older than the students when I went back to university. And... I, I, pop culture references of mine went completely over the head. So, uh, you know, um, uh, th nothing that he finds fu you know, funny is funny to them. He talks about Monty Python. They've no idea who Monty There's Python is. There's nothing like something thing. to make you feel old. Uh, it, a lost exactly. cultural reference. He's not living in halls either, so he feels quite disconnected from that as well. Um, the culture's changed. His old student union bar is now a Starbucks. Uh, and the world of video games has moved on as well. In, in those 20 years, he hadn't, hadn't really kept in touch with it. He's, he's trying to re rediscover a passion from his youth. And his first few lessons, he's puzzled by... Uh, increasingly complicated controllers that he's working with and technology and peripherals his class are using. Um, and he's belittled by Professor Palmer, a titan of game design in the late 90s, who's now settled down to a cushy life of teaching at a university. However, over the course of the year, Tom grows closer to two people. Angela Thorne, the only female academic in the department, Someone who's kind of been shunted to the edges. She's a little bit of a maverick. No one quite knows what her deal is. Uh, and Kate Marlowe, an American student who looks up to Palmer like a god in that way that kind of impressionable late teen, early 20 people do with when they're in the, uh, in the midst of legends, essentially. Thorne's seminar group clashes with Palmer's team in the first game jam of the year with Palmer's taste for dazzle and spectacle winning out against the worthy game coming from the team led by Tom. However, Tom notices that a character in Palmer's game uh, is one that Tom created for a plat platform, uh, a Spectrum game called Laszlo Steel Investigates That's in the early title. 90s. That's a great title. I know. It was a kind of puzzle detective game. Uh, yeah, all pixel based. It was beautiful. I will just say now, Laszlo Steel is my alter. If, if, if I'm ever famous and stay in a hotel, Laszlo Steel's what I'm staying as. Um, so Tom tries to point this out, but then Palmer publicly humiliates him in front of the entire class. However, later that night, Kate comes round to Tom with a copy of Laszlo Steel on cassette and asks if he's still got a spectrum to play on it. He digs it out. Two become closer that night, but then throughout the rest of the year, but their respective mentors are encouraging them to focus on the end of year competition. And both, both academics have their own romantic eyes on their students as well. The competition comes and all of the students' games are being played and scored and judged by various students. Kate's game is wowing people, but she's not happy with it. She then sabotages her own game before making an earnest speech about how new and different isn't always better. This is clearly aimed at Tom's game and Tom himself as well. Soon, Tom is controversially awarded the prize and Kate asks him if he wants to come back to the States with her for the summer to see how they get on to explore whatever it is that they've currently got. But Tom doesn't want to put her in the same position he found himself in 20 years ago, and he lets her down as gently as possible. Oh. In a quiet pub that hasn't changed much since the 90s, so peeling posters of early Britpop bands are still lining the walls, Tom settles down for a pint and some peace and quiet. On a job well done. Someone walks in and sits next to him. It's Diane. He's not seen her for a little bit. She's decided to come back to their old haunts as well. They, did, they talk about the year that they've had, the student days that they had. And then Tom suggests that they go out for a bite to eat, maybe. Uh, possibly even go for their first ever date. And as they walk out of the pub, an 8-bit pixel version of Tom appears at the top left of the screen. And the title comes up on screen, One Up. I love that. <laughs>
I, I have no... You know, sometimes we do this and you think, oh, damn you, you've got yeah. a really good... I don't care. That's such a good <laughs> story. It seems full of the heart. It's got nostalgia. I, I'm going to be really jealous to hear your cast bricks. I kind oh, of, bless you. Well, bless I've got, you. I've kind of got loads of ideas popping my head of who could fill those roles. Nice. Oh, that's nice. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, um, what we always do now is crew. So, mine's quite a straightforward one. It was, it was quite easy of... Um, looking at the creative team behind it, of uh, really wanted this classic sense of a rom-com, but also someone that can deliver the drama aspect. So I had a look around, um, and Peter Catania, who did Rev and The Full Monty, so from Full Monty, the film, that kind of tick, 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 all your boxes, but then Rev that's got that quirky, nice mm -hmm. characters. Um, and to write it, oh no, I'll come to my writer in a minute, because there's a, no, no, wait, I'll do my writer now. Uh, because linking to that from Rev, uh, I really like the script in that. So Tom Hollander, I thought, nice. to write it. There's a partnership. They've worked together before. Uh, going through my cast, um, Peter, the head of English. I didn't mention him much in the story. Um, the CAD one. Mm. Um, it's his development. I don't want him actually to be this horrible one, but he should look like he's slightly obnoxious. Yeah. But also something about him that you think, oh, I quite like him. Yeah. That just seemed to me to be Robert Webb. Nice, yeah, yeah. That immediately seemed an obvious one. Uh, Kyle, <coughs> uh, the young NQT that's cool and funky but slightly dashing, who she kind of thinks, is he flirting with me? Um, I've gone for John Boyega. Nice. Because uh, I think from he's going to be big, he's going to be box office, but it'd be really nice to see him in a I different type of role. I wish he taught me at school. Yeah, yeah that yeah, type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. It'd be cool. That would that'd be really nice. Um, then over is Paul, the online nerd that she mm. kind of meets up to date. This seemed really obvious. I'm, I've gone for Tom Hollander because <laughs> he's writing it and yeah. he has got that look. He's quite small, but he's also quite cute. You can imagine yeah. him doing that role. Um, so he'd be great. Uh, the head teacher, Paula, who's the, the best friend that isn't really that much of a best friend. Uh, Leslie Sharp, who I think is great and likes to see more stuff. Uh, for John, the geography teacher. because I want that. To, that needs to be a really moving scene. So yeah. he needs to be someone you can imagine being this slightly annoying footy-duddy teacher but also someone you'd want to go, oh, for. Yeah. Uh, so I've gone for David Bradley. Uh, Filch from Harry Potter. I was in Broadchurch and Blackpool. So I thought that would be perfect yeah. for him. Uh, cinema photographer. Um, I kind of didn't think much for a rom-com, but I really love the look of 2,000 Acres of Sky, if anyone's right, seen yeah. that. Uh, Michelle Collins piece with, um, I always forget his name, Dennis Pennis. Yes. Paul, Paul K. K. Yeah, that's yeah. his proper name. Can't call him Dennis Pennis. Uh, so the cinematographer for that was Nigel Walters, and that's got a lovely, lovely look. Um, and the music, uh, obviously it's a rom-com, so it's just lots of stuff kind of like. Uh, so I will use one in my tray that I'll talk about, but otherwise it's stuff kind of like Imagine Dragons and the Temples. That's my cast and crew. Nice. Oh, no, I've missed out. What am I doing? It's not my cast oh, and crew. Oh, yeah. Who plays the lead? Yeah. <laughs> so that would be useful to know. Uh, so Verity, the lead in this, like I said, kind of 40s, but I kind of also wanted it to be slightly ambiguous. So the actual I've gone for, you could believe being younger, but also a bit older. Um, and I really, really like an actress, and she's just starting to get a lot more attention now. Uh, so Michelle Gomez, um, I think she does comedy brilliantly. Yeah. But you also feel she's feisty and yep. independent, can do all of that. So yeah, Michelle Gomez. So my crew first. Uh, my director, quite uh, quite similar to you. Uh, I've gone for someone who can 
kind of do the job. You don't need an auteur in this kind of situation. Apart, you know, uh, Richard Curtis is probably the only real romantic comedy auteur that I'm, and I, I doubt many people ever call him an auteur, but you know, he <laughs> writes, directs, and there is, and you know a Richard Curtis film when you see one. So yeah, I'm, I'm going with that. But um, so I wanted someone who could do comedy. That was really important to me. And I look back on British comedies over the last few years. Uh, that I've really enjoyed. And yeah, um, Sightseers by Ben Wheatley was one that I really loved, but Alpha Papa. And I thought, okay, so who did Alpha Papa? Okay, oh, it's, it's Declan Lowney, who also worked on Father Ted, as well with Graham Linehan and Arthur Mas Yeah, gotta be. So uh, yeah, I've gone with Declan Lowney, because he comes from a world where people kind of don't see video games as being the sad domain of the sad people. Yeah, we're in this kind of world now, it's really interesting where the people who grew up playing video games are now the people making... In the same way that the Marvel films are now made by people who grew up reading Marvel comic books. And, you know, it's quite nice. A lot of people have mentioned Pixels to me recently. I've not gone to see it. but It looks awful. It looks awful. And the, and the problem with Pixels, from what I can tell, is that it tries to have... It, it tries to trade on gamers' nostalgia, but then laugh at gamers at the same time. You just can't do that. No, this film isn't about that. This film is about celebrating that. So, you know, laughing at the ridiculousness of it, but kind of in the way that we're allowed to if it's something that we like. In the way that we can take the mickey out of our favourite TV programmes because we love our favourite no TV programmes. But no one else can, exactly. Um, writer, I've gone back to romantic comedy roots as well. Uh, Stephen Moffat, who wrote Coupling, and is a very funny man. And if he wants a bit of a break from Doctor Who... Please. Uh, yeah, come and I've not even started watching the no. new Doctor Who. I didn't Let's watch not get started on Let's that. not do that now. Um, so, yeah, and um, also uh, wrote Sherlock as well. Uh, I, I love Sherlock, and that brings me on to my cast and Tom. And I was looking for a kind of man who could do 40-year-old, world-weary. Um, a couple of people came to mind. Interesting, you've got uh, Robert Webb, because I had David Mitchell in mind for this. Yeah, I can, um, I can totally see that. But I didn't want stereotypical kind of nerd which is let's face it that's what he is uh, and and he does it brilliantly um so i've gone for martin freeman who i think you know you could you could easily see him as someone who 20 years ago would have been a bit nerdy but has left all that behind and now maybe wants to go back to it uh his wife diane i've gone for julia davis who's just one of my favorite comic actresses at full stop and she needs to be in more stuff anyway um uh, Kate, the American actress, I've gone for Alison Pill. Uh, not Emma Stone. Not Emma Stone, I know. I, I kind of felt that Emma Stone was almost... Uh, she felt a little bit too glamorous for this, That's in a way. stupid talk. I know. I was almost tempted. I, <laughs> Alison Brie was in my head as well, as she always is, uh, whenever I awake. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a few, uh, Brie Larson as well was was uh, another choice that I, I would like there. But Alison Pill, who played um, Maggie in mm. the newsroom, but also was in Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which again to me is a romantic comedy played for video game laughs. Uh, and there's loads of fantastic video game references in that film. So Alison Pill, who can do young, can do funny as well, and she can do funny and earnest. And she's in you know, her her and Jim in the newsroom is one of my favourite romances of recent years. So that, that seems to work. And then my two professors, uh, coming from very different, Angela Thorne, 
Uh, I just, uh, well, basically, I thought, imagine if I went back to university and one of my lecturers was Gillian Anderson. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, <laughs> Done, cast her. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's what I can do as a producer. Brilliant. Basically, I just want to meet Gillian Anderson. And she's really funny as well. She, she can she be hilarious. Um, and Professor Patrick Palmer. I wanted someone to be really, like, over the top. This is a pantomime figure, essentially. I want it. It doesn't need to be an actor here. It needs to be someone who just makes you laugh essentially. Uh, and so I've gone with Matt Berry, who has a, an incredible voice. And this casting moment came from when he turned up in Community Season 6 when I was watching it. I thought, yeah, he's awesome as a teacher. He's really... <clears throat> he's just someone who carries that incredible arrogance. And you kind of love him despite him being an utter dick. So, uh, a brilliant voice. So, yeah, that's... Uh, the, and my music would be just filled with Britpop, early, you know, mid-90s, early-90s songs including uh, the one for my trailer, which I'll mention in a second. Trailer time. Music. Gabriel Applin, cue, please. This is all set around the idea of who I am. So I want Verity introducing herself in a variety of places, uh, like it's her doing her dating profile. It's kind of the setup of the trailer. So her going into different places, she's walking into class. Hello, my name is Miss Ashcroft. I'm your English teacher for this year. To loudly talking down the phone, it's Verity, your daughter. To awkwardly introducing herself at a training session, standing up saying, I'm Verity. She sits down, she's back up, Ashcroft. Verity Ashcroft, she sits back down again. She stands back up. Acting head of English, she sits back down. She stands back up. At Northampton, not here. This is all intercut with trying to fill in the nonsense of a dating profile. We get a glimpse of some of the comedy moments, but obviously not the best ones, because I freaking hate that. Uh, so in class, uh, she gets asked about how old she is and why she hasn't got any kids. Women don't have to have children, that's not a law. It's something that we can have in common. That's not my Michelle Gomez impression, by the way. A total <laughs> lack of appreciation and scorn for parenthood. A hand goes up. Yes, my daughter's five months old, miss. Well, there's always an exception. Another two hands go up. All right, put them down. You can keep your hands to yourself, which is something you might like to say to the next boy you roll around with. We mimic her introduction with the three men coming into view in split screen. We're helped with their introduction by the principal pouring a drink from the flask in her drawer. As much as I want to hear about your internet nerd, you have an NQT to mentor and a cocky bastard wanting to steer this merger to his advantage. With her mum, we then see her clearly unwell and she says, my dear, if I kept stopping to ask who am I, I'd never have got round to asking, what can I achieve? And then we end on the, what are you looking for part of a dating profile application? She just looks up. Oh my God, I nearly quoted you two. Laptop slam shut. Nice. That is, Snappy. A strong, Snappy. that is a strong trailer. I think I might have redeemed myself a little that bit. That is very good. Okay. I like that. I feel a little bit more better about myself. Yeah, Less no, like. Okay. Wow. <coughs> um, okay. So, on to mine. And uh, we open with, this is also my end credits song as well. Because that, that's an important part of a romantic comedy for me is that 
you know, you get the big kiss and the big end, and and then it's got you got to walk out of the cinema feeling really pumped and happy. And uh, so mine is Yes by McCammon and Butler, which is great track. I was uh, the other day I was thinking, what are my ten t top ten pop songs of all time? And that's one of them. Absolutely, that brilliant wall of sound, fantastic vocal, uh, and the lyrics quite quite kind of meaningful here as well. So we've got that music. opens on the scene where Tom and Diana dropping their son Mark Will Bird from the Inbetweeners uh, off at university uh, and this scene has some narration by Sir David Attenborough and so the youngster unsteady on his feet makes his way into the wide world wondering if he will ever see his parents again scene in the pub feature, uh, featuring the argument also followed by shots of Tom slipping into a funk not shaving sitting down watching day TV, daytime TV these kind of things no longer the alpha male. This middle-aged nobody is abandoned by the herd. Then we get a montage of Tom deciding to go back to university, but discovering it's not really how he remembers. It's basically a very kind of Richard Curtis view of old school, starring Will Ferrell. Uh, introductory scenes of our two professors. So uh, you've got Professor Palmer giving a grand spectacle speech in a lecture hall where he appears and disappears. And then there's a virtual reality version of him over on the screen over there. And, you know, load of nods, all smoke and mirrors, basically. And the other in a small seminar room, uh, a load of students just listening to Professor uh, Thorne as she tears into a student for daring to display images of gaming's most serious and constant menace, uh, images of misogyny and outdated gender politics. And we pan across a load of students. One is in a Grand Theft Auto T-shirt. One's in a Duke Nukem 3D t-shirt until we settle on the man in the Mario t-shirt who kind of goes to me. And then she goes on from one about how in every game it's about a man rescuing a woman who's been kidnapped by another bad man, basically. I, I want to get into feminist feminism in games, not to t poke fun at it, because I think it's a genuine, uh, a genuine cause to have a, a think about. Uh, then we introduce Kate the start of hers and Tom's friendship, but also their rivalry. And then the end section of the trailer uh, is a line that Tom gives to Kate in that student room late at night. And ju they've just been playing some games. Uh, he says, remember when games were simple? You had a joystick, two buttons, and a clash of colored dots that didn't need to look nice to be beautiful. I kind of miss that. End. Nice. I, I, I'm conceding. I think this is the first time. Oh, no, I really don't think you should, though. This, this I really is 1066 really like all yours. over again. I really this like is, yours. No, I love that, and I can totally bitch yours. Now you've said you're cast as well. I, I've cheated a bit by just trading on video. I, I know I know what kind of people listen to podcasts, and a lot of them <laughs> have played video games. In a way, I'm being really blatant with my uh, playing to the audience. There. I think that's <laughs> totally acceptable what you should do, certainly from a producer's point of view. There you have it. Um, we have Extra Life uh, and The Search for Me, which is still awful. I still can't think of anything better for it. Um, and we'll I will say, it does sound like a Nicholas Sparks, uh, uh, you know, like those ones that star Zac Efron or something. The search, yeah, better title. I think you're, you're, you're onto a winner there because I can totally. Yours feels like a fully realized British romantic comedy. Yours really does. 
I shall, I shall try and see if I can think of a different title <laughs> by the time this goes to edit. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Nathan. I've been James. Thank you.